Welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where an undergraduate philosophy major and his former high school philosophy teacher discuss a variety of philosophical topics in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Coming to you from the Agora, it's Andrew Graziano. From dust I was born, to dust I shall return. I'm your teacher host, Derek Parsons. And welcome to Season 2, Episode 5, where this week we begin our series on Stoicism and the philosophy of the big three Stoics. Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. Before that, Mr. Parsons, how have you been? You know exactly what I'm going to say. And it's, <laughs> I have been wonderful because it is spring break and my brain is switched off from all that work stuff, at least temporarily. I'm very happy about that. And then after this podcast, we're going outside to plant flowers in our garden. <laughs> I mean, what a simple life. I am the Dow. How are you? <laughs> that sounds great. I, for people who don't know you, I, I know you're kind of an avid gardener from from pictures of your garden that I've seen. So I know that probably unlike other people, gardening's not a chore for you. Although it might be, I don't know. No, it's not. You want to know how badly it's gotten? Uh, so next door to us is a rental house, and we know that we know the owners. But our kitchen window faces the side wall of this house, and there's just this sad little bed outside of it with like a dead palm from two years ago during the hard freeze, and then just this empty bed with one really sad-looking rose bush. And we asked them if we could plant a garden there on the side of their house, so when we look out our kitchen window, we can see a beautiful garden. Isn't that silly? Now we're like planting gardens in other people's yards for our enjoyment. (laughs) So that's, that's how far it's gone. Oh my goodness. That's funny. I guess I guess that's good. If if both of if nobody's uh, if everybody's enjoying it, then uh, yeah, everyone's happy. But how are you, Andrew? <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I'm also on spring break, so that's good. I am this week. I'm just going to be. I'm not really going anywhere or doing anything that exciting. That's a normal spring break uh, college plan. I'm just. I have a big stack of books behind me. People won't be able to see it, but uh, I'm just going to be reading some of these books and uh, it's going to be a really fun time. So I'm super excited for that. And what else? Oh, weekly weather report, of course, or bi-weekly weather report that comes out two weeks late. The weather's been kind of cold. I've been kind of sad about that, but that's okay. Oh, it's going to be a beautiful week though. Alluding to a later part of our episode, um, I went to the rodeo on Friday because it's like five minutes away from Rice. It's we, t- we just take the metro, which we can go on for free, and it's right there. My friends have never been to the rodeo, so I was just showing them like all of the, you know, the rodeo events. We, the performer, he's like some Houston rapper from, I don't know, before, before our time. So we, we didn't <laughs> stick around for his concert, but... Uh, so during my time, that's what you said. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying that, but... It was so cold there, like I was, Ugh. I was, I was freezing, um, and that was not fun. Yeah, last week was cold. So for people who aren't familiar with it, the Houston rodeo is going on right now. It's like a massive two-week ordeal where, oh yeah, it takes place at NRG Stadium, which is where the NFL team plays, and tons of rides and livestock and rodeos every night and massive concerts, and it's kind of a cultural thing. We're 
We're really excited to begin this series on Stoicism and the big thinkers of Stoicism. There are many Stoic thinkers, philosophers, but we're going to hit the big three, which Andrew mentioned in our intro, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. But in this episode, we're going to have it serve as an introduction to the philosophy of Stoicism, which will lend greater understanding to when we're talking about Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius, specifically in future episodes. We did an episode last year on Marcus Aurelius, and maybe about 20 minutes of that episode was on Stoicism itself. We want to spend a little more time on it today. It's a, a philosophy that I know Andrew and I both find as a, as a very practical philosophy that can be helpful in people's lives. And so very different from our, our previous topic on consciousness, which is philosophically important, of course. Here we are talking about a philosophy of life or philosophy of living, uh, which attempts to answer that all-important question, how does one live a good life? So Stoicism has some answers to that, and that's what we're going to talk about today. So Andrew, talk to us a little bit about what a philosophy of life is. What, what do we mean when we say that? The first thing that I come come to think about, and I think um, when I hear, hear that term, because I think it is a kind of a almost a popular term that's going around nowadays, f- philosophy. Philosophy as a way of life, that's what I traditionally hear it as. But well, when I think of a philosophy of living, I think of kind of almost what our goal is of this podcast, thinking about philosophy as a way to improve your life in whatever way that is. These older forms of philosophy or older schools of philosophy, rather, often kind of focus on this idea where I think modern, you know, I hate to use that term modern philosophy because it doesn't even refer to what we're thinking of, but our contemporary to us philosophers, um, it might seem a little bit more dragged out. But I think uh, thinking of philosophy as a way of living and improving your life in that way, and older philosophers kind of think of, and I think this is both Western and Eastern, but I'm not quite sure about that. They kind of have this end in mind of, of what makes a life good. And I think that's kind of something necessary to all of it. Let me bring up two things. Actually, let me kick the can back to you, Mr. Parsons, what you think of when you think about that term. And then I want to say a few more things about this. Yeah, I think about, for instance, other forms or rather philosophies of living. I also think of things like, you know, the, the idea of self-help, which which is not exactly what we're talking about here, but it's kind of, they're kind of cousins of each other maybe a little bit. But other philosophies of living that people might be familiar with would be from the Eastern tradition, uh, Taoism or Buddhism or Zen Buddhism uh, or many of the world religions, of course. But in the more modern context, we have other isms that we call philosophies of life, like existentialism uh, from the American tradition, pragmatism, and even uh, things like effective altruism, which has to do with how we uh, ethically care for others. And so like all of these are ways that we can sort of take our existence and shape it into something that is meaningful when we do, I mean, as all people, I hope, attempt to answer the question of how should I live a good life? How can I live a life that is flourishing, which is a specific term to Aristotle, virtue, and Stoicism we'll talk about here in a minute. And also, I think when we think of philosophies of living, we also we should include that that those always involve, like, say, a metaphysics. In other words, like, mm. what is the condition of our existence, right? What is the nature of things? And then there's always an ethical aspect to it as well. Like, 
uh, how should we morally respond to our condition? How should we live in that condition in a morally responsible way? So anyway, yeah. How about you? Back back to you, Andrew. Probably the one of the things that I wanted to bring up was I think I think there's been a resurgence in philosophy and probably an academic philosophy that I'm more aware of, I suppose, as looking at philosophy as a way of life. In our Gregory Sadler episode that was uh, in last season, one of the books he mentions near the end of the episode is uh, Pierre Hadot's, I think it's Philosophy as a Way of Life. Let me double check that real quick. I think Um, that's right. Pretty sure. Yes, it's Philosophy as a Way of Life. And I think that that's just one example. That's a very popular book on philosophy written by an important historian. It's just thinking, particularly that book, I suppose, is thinking about ancient philosophy as a way of living. But I think academic departments now are more concerned of looking at philosophy as a way of life. There is this great grant that, that we also talked about in that episode from Notre Dame that allows universities to fund philosophy classes that are about philosophy as a way of life, too. Last semester, I took part in one of these. I was a TA for one of those classes, and I thought it was extremely fulfilling uh, for myself and other students, too. That's that's just um, kind of the resurgence of it, I guess. But I agree with your point that philosophy as a way of life does definitely depend on uh, metaphysics, some metaphysical constructions of of things, too, which is important to understand them because there needs to be, well, there doesn't need to be, I guess, necessarily, even if you deny, I guess, some kind of greater metaphysical being that's kind of imparting goodness or, or some some objectivity on your beliefs, making them good or bad or making your life better or worse, you're still kind of making a metaphysical claim in itself. Uh, so metaphysics is definitely tied into this. Yeah. And another thing, another reason we're, we're, well, we're probably interested in this topic is because we've become aware of stoicism. So mm. recently, kind of like Andrew said, especially in the latter half of the 20th century, philosophy got very academic. And um, I just saw yesterday a, a, from an interview with Cornell West, he's more interested these days in uh, making philosophy uh, practical. Popular philosophy is what we might call it. And that the academic stuff is great, you know, but a philosophy also should really appeal to that original sentiment of, of what philosophy sort of began for, which is to explain our situation and how we should live in it. And so, so all you have to do is look at the publishing world and see the upsurge in the last 10 to 15 years of philosophy books, and especially philosophy that surrounds philosophies of living. Existentialism is has always kind of been a big one, but it, it made a resurgence in the 90s, and then now is certainly very big in publishing again. But I think I mean, I don't have numbers right in front of me, but if I'm just looking at the bookshelves on in bookstores, Stoicism is very popular. You have a number of podcasts that are out there that deal with Stoicism, mm-hmm. like The Daily Stoic with Ryan Holiday. You have uh, things like Stoicon, which is a, a conference that people can attend. Uh, you have Stoic Meditations by Massimo Piglucci. Just last year, a new translation of Meditations, Marcus Aurelius's Meditations, came out by Robin Waterfield with a companion commentary. And so... There's lots of publishing going on with Stoicism. So that's another reason we wanted to do an episode on it is because it's something that people are very interested in right now. 
Stoicism has been something that's been popular throughout time, I guess, from from its existence, from the beginning of its existence. And there was an established school of, of Stoicism too. But in 429 AD, with the, the kind of shutdown of these schools um, in Greece um, and in the rest of Western Europe, Stoicism fell into decline for about a thousand years, I would say, and, and just started kind of resurging uh, in the Italian Renaissance when it started to be picked back up. And there, there was a lot of interest in it. In Italy, I would say it was primarily through kind of the Ciceronian aspects of Stoicism. And it was picked up in that way. And then it grew as a function of culture too, as stretching to the to Northern Europe too at that time. So we'd later see it. It's, it's very popular in uh, the Dutch Republic at that time too. There's this, there's this really interesting art movement actually, people are familiar with, I'm sure, called Still Lives. And that's, uh, it's kind of hearkening back to some foundational Stoic principles. And that's, that's kind of the, the genre of their work. Yeah, I guess uh, ever since then, Stoicism has been kind of adapted. It's been changed. It's been read, though, um, ever since then, ever since the Renaissance, it's been changed and thought about in different ways by academic philosophers all the way from then to today. And there's been a lot of famous people who have studied Stoicism in depth. It's continued to change. I don't know if there's any recent changes in kind of Stoic thinking. Let's go back to the beginning of Stoicism when it when it began and talk about that for a moment. So, so we want to talk about a time period in history called Hellenism. And Hellenism essentially exists from 323 BCE, which is the death of Alexander the Great, uh, to 33 BCE, which is when you have like the full annexation annexation of the Greek heartland by Rome, right? So Think, uh, let's go back in time and think about the Mediterranean world and how there in the northern Mediterranean you have Italy, and then to the east of Italy you have Greece, and then to the east of that you have what was the Persian Empire, but is today what we call Turkey and the Middle East. And so Alexander the Great conquers all of Persia and then dies. <laughs> he never got to rule any of it. He conquered all the Persian Empire, which is all of the Middle East, going all the way to India, and then North Africa, and Egypt, and then he dies. And during that time period, over in Italy, you have the beginnings of the Roman Republic, which is growing in power pretty rapidly as a trade republic, which will eventually become an empire. But sort of in this interim between Alexander the Great and Roman Empire, you have this era that we call Hellenism. And this is just an era where Greek ideals, Greek thought, Greek religion, everything Greek really sort of permeates the area that we're talking about, Persia, former Persian Empire, Middle East, North Africa. And so there's just a big influence of Greek ideals. And this is when a number of very influential philosophical schools begin to spring up. Stoicism is one of them, Cynicism is another one, and then Epicureanism is, uh, is a third. And there are a couple of other mores we could talk about, like Neoplatonism. Anyway, that's the time period we're talking about as far as the beginning of Stoicism. 
I guess the best place to start when we're talking about the history of Stoicism is at the beginning. That all begins, supposedly according to uh, this guy named Diogenes, who was a historian who chronicled a lot of things, but one of his books was about these old philosophers. And in this book, he attributes the foundation of Stoicism to Zeno of Sidium. And Zeno was basically this dude who was super interested, or at least when he was younger, I guess, he was interested in philosophy. We were talking about philosophy as a way of life a second ago. I believe from Diogenes' account, Zeno was super interested in wanting to live the best life he could live, uh, kind of how we were just talking about. So he consulted an oracle, and he asked the oracle basically, you know, how do I live a good life? How do I live the best life that I can? So apparently Zeno got a response from the oracle that said basically that for Zeno to live the best life he could, he should take on the complexion of the dead. And so Zeno, being the smart guy that he was, I guess, he took that on to mean that he should study ancient authors. Soon after that, he basically got into a shipwreck, and I think he lost all of his possessions in that shipwreck. Yeah. Yeah, he lost everything. I want to say he was a merchant, and that like wiped out his entire business. He's a merchant. He lost all his, all his possessions, all his money. I think he was quite wealthy before, too. Uh, so he has no trade now, or he lost all of his trade because, you know, being a merchant requires funds and ships and all of that good stuff. And then after he, you know, survived his shipwreck, he went to Athens. He was a Phoenician, actually, a Phoenician citizen. So he's not Athenian, but um, he went to Athens after a shipwreck, went into a bookshop and famously picked up a book from Socrates, about Socrates. I don't think it was Plato, actually. I think it was Xenophon. And then he asked uh, where he could find someone like Socrates to be teaching him. And he found, basically, I think right after that, a cynic teacher to teach him and was schooled in the ways of cynicism. And from the cynic, he learns a, a number of things that we associate with Greek thought from the time period, especially associated with Socrates and everyone that came after him, essentially. And that is a focus on the virtues and what it means to live a good life according to, in relationship with the virtues. So that impacted him significantly. He uh, you know, looked at the things that were important in his life, such as his business and his wealth, realized that those were gone. And now that those were gone, you know, the, the question was, well, what is important? Since that's not here anymore, what is important? And what became clear to him was what was important was to live a life that was virtuous, uh, wealth, possessions, businesses, none of that impacts how, whether or not you live virtuously. He takes some of his teachings of the cynics and begins developing his own sort of take on that and begins teaching and he, he gains some followers and begins teaching at a place called the Stoa, which which was like a painted porch uh, is what it's called. And so I think this this is an interesting fact. His Followers were originally called Xenonians, which sounds like something out of a 1950s sci-fi book. But eventually the name Stoics caught on, named after the fact that he taught his philosophy at the Stoa. And this becomes one of the big three philosophies, uh, well, I guess four if you want to include Neoplatonism, of the Hellenistic era, and makes its way over to Rome, of course. 
and becomes kind of one of the philosophical bedrocks of of Roman life, uh, along with, I would say, Epicureanism. Yeah, let me just add two, two things to uh, finishing up Zeno. First, there's this really famous story about the, the, tr- the early training days of, of Zeno uh, when he was Crates' uh, student. Um, that was the philosopher who he took under his wing, or not who Zeno took under his wing, but who Crates took him under his wing after Zeno had that kind of revelation. And it's this kind of funny story where basically Zeno was, I guess, a really smart philosophy student. Um, he was showing a lot of potential, but he wasn't really taking all of these cynic principles. And, and so he's still training to be a cynic. Crates was a, a very famous cynic philosopher from that time. And so Crates was like, how am I going to train uh, Zeno so he can get rid of his, his arrogance? Uh, I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but you know, a big part of uh, cynicism is giving up everything you have, and that includes giving up your pride and thinking you're you're kind of better than everybody else. And I guess Zeno carried that on from his life of exuberant wealth uh, pre shipwreck. And basically, Zeno was made to carry a pot of like lentils or some kind of soup through um, district in Greece in Athens because I guess that was like kind of an ignoble thing to do or from that time. And Zeno is basically going through like the back streets so nobody would see him. Uh, and then Crates saw him and broke the pot. And so the lentils like, you know, fell all over him. And, uh, you know, Zeno was super embarrassed and he was running away with uh, a bunch of lentils on him. And um, it's there's this famous quote, from Crates, he says, "Why run away, my little Phoenician? Nothing terrible has befallen you." But that's that's kind of like the the thunderstrike moment in uh, Stoic philosophy, where I think that's kind of a, a good place we can identify a good story, but also a, a good foundational principle. And also, I'd like to say too, is Zeno was offered citizenship by the Athenians, which was later in his life after he was kind of a prominent philosopher, which is saying something because Athenians rarely gave out citizenship uh, to people who are not born citizens. And it just speaks to how important they thought he was because Athenians weren't, weren't really that fond of foreigners and Phoenicians. So he's an important guy. And, and obviously from that, we can, from that, both from that last story about citizenship, we can tell that he was he was seen as a, a prominent figure, and, and, and his philosophy, too, was impactful to Athenians. That's the sound of money. Fresh-printed money, 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 money. You know, Mr. Parsons, the Houston Rodeo is going on right now. It is. Wow, that sounds uh, so exciting. Yeah, like I said, I, I went once, and um, I mean, the food was good, and we saw lots of cute bunnies and lambs and whatever, but I don't know. Geez, you know, uh, if I were to go to the rodeo and, you know, like people always are giving tickets away and stuff. I mean, if, if I were to go to the rodeo, I'm afraid I don't have much yeehaw in my wardrobe. I don't want to show up just yeah, looking out of place. Well, that's perfect because William James Western Wear Emporium has got you covered. Oh, man, you got to be kidding me. Uh, are they this week's sponsor? Yeah, of course. The great American pragmatist, philosopher, and father of American psychology really, really loved a good Western outfit. Check that out online if you're not familiar with that. And in that spirit, William James Western Wear Emporium 
stands ready to wrangle your style for a rodeo-ready look. Ooh, hey, what if I want to go two-stepping with my lady, but I ain't got the boots? WJWWE has got you covered. Dealing in only the most authentic Western styles, you're sure to be a success. Oh, please tell me they've got some shirts with mother-of-pearl buttons. Darn tootin'. And a 10-gallon hat? Are there needles on a cactus? Of course they do. Wow. Sounds like if I want authentic country clothing, then I best giddy on up over to William James Western Wear Emporium, and so should you. Money, money, money. And we'd ask that you, our lovely listener, sponsor us by quickly rating our podcast and leaving a review. It tickles the neurons of our algorithmic overlords, causing open door philosophy to pop up more frequently in search results and recommendations to listeners. All right, sure does. Hey, let's uh head on back to the Ponderosa and get back to stoicism. All right. Well, thanks, William James Western Wear Emporium. So now we're going to talk about aspects or tenets of stoicism. In other words, how do you be a stoic? So I'm sure you're super inspired by Zeno's story of lentils all over him. (laughs) And he's right. Like, what is it that makes us worry about how we look to others, uh, how we are perceived by others? And so we'll get into all that. We should start out with the question of like, well, well, like what's the point or the goal of stoicism? And so, of course, we've already mentioned like all philosophies of life that, you know, you want to try to achieve the good life. I want to use some some very specific terminology uh, specific to stoicism here for a moment. And these are some of what the goals of life should be. For the Stoics, it's to live in ataraxia or tranquility of mind. Another word we might use is equanimity. So this is tranquility of mind, to be at peace at things and to not have a, a disturbed mind, but one that is calm. You also want to appeal to eudaimonia. That essentially means flourishing. I think this is a really interesting take. You know, a lot of people always say when it comes to like philosophies of life, like how can I live a happy life? I want happiness, happiness in life. And the Stoics really don't use that particular language. They use eudaimonia, which means flourishing. Is your life flourishing? And uh, that can take many, many forms. Some of those might be outside of what we would commonly consider happiness. And then the last term I want to use is arete, which essentially means excellence. To live an excellent life. To live a life that is flourishing means that you're living an excellent life. And there's a lot baked into that that deals with virtues and everything. But essentially, arete is excellent. So you want to live a life that is flourishing, one that is excellent, and of course, that will result in your tranquility of mind. So those are kind of the points, if you will, or the goal of Stoicism, to live a good life in that particular way. Some of these terms, too, they are understood. Well, some, some of them are, some of them are not. Some of them are understood in, in kind of a Stoic context, too. Other schools that you mentioned, especially uh, Epicureanism, also uses like this kind of idea of uh, ataraxia, but it's not necessarily kind of understood in the same way. So I think that, you know, if you're going to go listen to this episode and then go read some Epicurean philosophers, uh, it's going to be a little bit different. So for the Stoics to live a life with ataraxia, eudaimonia and all that, part of that is that we, 
need to live <clears throat> our lives according to nature, uh, a life that is lived in reason. And when we say a, a life lived according to nature, it's like the natural order of things, following the flow of things. But also, a lot of this is connected with the idea of reason and the adoration that uh, that the Greeks give to human reason, that the universe is rational, we are rational, and in order to live a good life, we must live according to that reason, which is natural. One thing that unites these Hellenistic schools is the goal that they all, I think, I think they all share. I don't know about some of the other ones, but I'm pretty sure all but maybe one share this goal of eudaimonia. It's originating out of Socrates and Aristotle, which is a common point in the tree of philosophy that all of these schools share together. And for the Stoics in particular, from these four schools, something that's important and gets them to eudaimonia, and I think pretty solely, virtue alone will get you there. And, you know, virtue can be understood. I'll go over some aspects in a minute, but um, like Mr. Parsons was saying a minute ago, virtue, excellence, however you want to say it, that's that Greek word, arete. So it just means excellence. Virtue is excellence. We reach happiness by being excellent. We reach this kind of human flourishing when we're excellent human beings. And so I think that makes a little more sense when we think about it that way. And for the Stoics, there's these four very famous cardinal virtues. Justice, wisdom, temperance, and courage. Those are the four. And I think that, and maybe later Stoics, there's some like kind of more that are added on, but they're not quite cardinal virtues. So these are the four cardinal virtues. And these kind of encompass just ways that make human beings excellent. Let's talk about each one of these four Stoic virtues. So courage. Courage in that we should be able to discern what to fear and what not to fear. And also to be morally courageous to stand up and do the right thing. Wisdom, which is often a complicated one, some will say practical wisdom, but wisdom to know the difference between good and bad, <laughs> like that can be very messy, of course, but uh, but it's essentially being able to navigate complex situations, especially moral situations, and be able to apply your, re- your wisdom to that that you've acquired through study, of course, and experience. Justice. Again, this is a tricky one. I think when we think of justice, we often think of what should occur after someone has been wronged. But in the Stoic sense, in the virtuous sense, justice is to treat others with fairness. And so by extension, we get a number of other things that people might identify as virtues. So uh, kindness, benevolence, friendliness, and some of those other associated virtues. But justice is to treat others with fairness. And finally, temperance, which is or moderation oftentimes is another word that people use, which is what to pursue and and what to avoid. Uh, We could also use the term self-control, right? To be able to respond to situations in just measure without excess or deficiency. So those are the four Stoic virtues. This is where um, Stoicism differs from these other schools that precede it and that are contemporary to it too. It's that these four virtues... These four cardinal virtues are basically all one needs to live well, to reach eudaimonia. 
if a human reaches these four virtues and they become like a stoic sage i don't know if we're going to talk about sages on this episode of open door philosophy but might be for a later episode but just so it's out there and i think that that's really interesting and something i don't know if we have time to talk about it but i think it's important that basically the virtues are necessary and sufficient for living a good life they are you know that's all that's required I think understanding Stoicism in this context of these virtues being sufficient and necessary for eudaimonia alone, that helps us understand the entire philosophy of Stoicism in itself, I think. There's nothing else that's needed. You don't need wealth. You don't need glory. You don't need power. All that you need is these virtues. So let's talk about the dichotomy of control right now, which is a huge, a huge part of, of Stoicism and very similar to, well, some of the things that Andrew's already talked about and uh, his story of Zeno with the lentils. So the dichotomy of control, honestly, like this is, this idea is best expressed by Epictetus. So I'll just let him do the talking in this particular case. All right. So, so his quote about his famous quote about dichotomy control is some things are within our power while others are not. Within our power are opinion, motivation, desire, aversion, and, in a word, whatever is of our doing. Not within our power are our body, our property, our reputation, office, and, in a word, whatever is not our doing. We see this idea of dichotomy of control oftentimes in our society. Um, we It's part of the serenity prayer of Alcoholics Anonymous and any other associated groups where that serenity prayer starts out, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. That's as stoic as it gets right there, folks. (laughs) (laughs) This is the idea of the dichotomy of control, being able to uh, acknowledge what you do control, um, understand what you can influence, and being okay with the outcome of any of that what you can control and what you cannot control. And going back to that idea of like the virtues that Andrew talked about earlier, like what can you control? Well, you can control how you act, which are your virtues. Um, Everything else, eh, don't really have control over that. So a couple things I do want to point out about this particular view. One of the misconceptions about Stoics is that they are dislodged from life. They aren't really terribly involved in it because, oh, you know, you can control things and can't control other things. And so the things that they can't control, they just simply don't care about, like, say, a war in the Ukraine. Mm. So I want to point out that Stoics, at least the Roman Stoics, were heavily involved in society and their government specifically. Stoics Mm. are very involved. Most of the Stoics that we still know today, and of course this comes from the fact that they were very wealthy and powerful, and so people preserved their writing, but uh, that they were senators, they were emperors, they were generals. Uh, They were people who very much so were concerned with what was going on in life and the society around them, civic life. But at the same time, you know, like we, we have to realize, or the Stoics would say, we have to realize that uh, what is in our control and what is not, like we, we shouldn't lose our minds over what is not 
in our control. That's where that ataraxia comes in, right? That tranquility mm-hmm. of mind. So as long as we have done what we can, as long as we have acted as virtuously as possible, as long as we have run a good race, if you will, we should be at peace with whatever happens. One example of attempting to influence, but also being okay with the results if they don't turn out your way, is an example that Cicero, he had an example of an arrow and a target, right? So you're an archer and you want to, uh, you're in an archery tournament, right? And trying to win this great prize. So what can you do to win that prize? What can you do to be the best archer? Well, you can put in hours and hours and hours of practice. You can make sure that you have the finest bow that you have. You can make sure that your arrows are notched exactly right. You can have everything as perfect as possible and your technique as perfect as possible. But what are the things that are out of your control? Well, the weather that day, it might be super windy or it might be raining. There's all kinds of things that will impact the trajectory of an arrow once the archer pulls it back, aims, and lets go of that arrow. And so the thing the, that represents the things that are outside of your control. A huge gust of wind could come through. Who knows? A bird could like fly down and snatch the arrow. That'd be pretty impressive. But a falcon could probably do it. You know, that arrow, as much as you have trained, may just hit the mark right outside the bullseye and not hit the bullseye. And you don't win the prize. And so the the example here is that those things are out of the archer's control. You can't control those conditions. You can only control the aim. And the aim in this example would be your virtues. A part of Stoic philosophy that one has to grapple with if one is an adherent to it is that virtues are what makes a good life. But, you know, naturally, the question arises, like, aren't there other things that contribute to a good life, too? Aristotle famously says, like, wealth, health, and friends all contribute massively into a good life and that they're necessary. And so one of the Stoic concepts are differentiating between preferred indifference and dispreferred indifference. Basically, these are two... You can, I would say there are two kind of ways of categorizing things in the world that might be helpful uh, to living well and might, in the case of dispreferred indifference, are not uh, things that we should worry about at all. And I'm not giving a good definition of, you know, what these are because I think that noting aspects of them will be helpful first. I'm just going to read over a list from um, uh, a list of these indifference So some of the preferred indifference are life, health, pleasure, beauty, strength, wealth, good reputation, and noble birth. And something that we kind of see from this list is is two things, I think. First is most of these things are out of our control. If we're born healthy or not, that's not in our control. If we're born uh, with a lot of money, or we're born in noble birth, or we're born into a family that has a good reputation, all of those things are out of our control. And so while those things are beneficial, and they might contribute to us living a better life, they're things we really don't have control in. So that's kind of why they're preferred indifference. And on the other hand, dispreferred indifference include death, disease, pain, ugliness, weakness, poverty, low repute, ignoble birth. 
again, this is this is very much in contrast to these uh, preferred indifference. So these dispreferred indifference are all things that, on the surface, do seem kind of bad. They, um, you know, they're things that <laughs> probably don't contribute to a good life, at least on the surface, or or what it would seem to be the conventional good life. But again, there are things that we don't control. We don't really control when we get sick, uh, how much pain we might have from falling down the stairs or something, or how much harm a bad reputation or a bad birth might cause to someone. Yeah, and I think the temptation about indifference is to try to qualify them as either being good or bad. Uh, They are literally called indifference. And so while we might consider something like health to be good, health is neither good or bad because health is not a vice or a virtue, you know, according to the Stoics. Health is preferred over sickness as ill health can like, you know, impede a person's path towards virtue. But so, so that's the deal. Like the temptation is to call something like health and wealth, property, whatever, as being good. And, but, but they're not good. Goodness does not exist in nature. That, that kind of goes back to what I was what I think I poorly articulated earlier when it comes to following nature, right? The nature of things, a life lived according to nature. When we say that in, in the Stoic sense, well, I'll just, I'll just quote Marcus Aurelius. So uh, he says, and if we want to follow nature to be of one mind with it, we need to share its indifference to privilege pleasure over pain, life or death, fame or anonymity it is clearly blasphemous. Nature certainly doesn't. In other words, nature doesn't care. So when I say if we're going to follow nature or live life according to nature, nature doesn't care about your reputation. Nature doesn't care if it has a reputation. Nature doesn't care uh, about its health, although I think that it should. (laughs) Uh, Or certainly nature doesn't care if it's wealthy or anything like that. Um, So that's kind of, uh, I guess, another way to look at the preferred and dispreferred indifference. I think this idea of a preferred indifference versus um, dispreferred indifference is really goes along with this idea of stoic cosmopolitanism. So I think if if people aren't familiar with it's it's important I think to understand the context of Greek life before we talk about this. So so it really makes sense and it shows you to the extent of a distinction it is. A lot of these Greeks and Romans too, they saw a lot of their identity drawn into, you know, where they were from. The Athens, kind of like we alluded to earlier, they, they were very particular about who they gave citizenship to, who was a citizen. And it's kind of a big deal if you were an Athenian citizen. The same if you were a Roman citizen too. I think I might just be making I know. I don't I don't think I'm making this up. During the time that the Roman Empire or Roman Republic and probably Roman Empire is at its at its peak, you could go to India and claim you are a Roman citizen, and that was like a big deal there. Like they they wouldn't kill you. Of course, I don't know if that's true or not. It's probably not true, and I think that was coming from a Roman, uh, which is really funny. But yeah, your your identity of where you are from was was very much tied to uh, your citizenship and and your affiliation to to where you lived. So this idea of Stoic cosmopolitanism is really in contrast to this idea of 
I don't even know the right the, if there's a word for it now. I I don't want to say nationalism because it's really not nationalism. It's 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 more than that. But yeah, of this old Greek notion uh, and Greek and Roman notion of of identity being tied to one's city, these Stoics rejected that idea, and and they really claimed that there was they they were citizens of the world. They were cosmopolitans, and I I think that you know if you think about it, uh, it might seem strange on the surface, but I think it makes a lot of sense for for a Stoic. Uh, to say that. Well, and I think if you tie in the whole uh, notion of following nature, clearly nature is a is a system, right? Mm. Clearly nature is a system that relies on all of its constituent parts in order to thrive, right? So in that way, if you take the Stoke notion of following nature, it makes sense that they're cosmopolitans. And you'll say is in opposition to say like the Epicureans, again, which was a a school of philosophy that we mentioned earlier that was popular Mm. at the time, the the Epicureans withdraw from the world. Whereas the Stoics are very much, like I said earlier, very much in the world and find equanimity sort of in the hubbub of life. Like, Like the Stoics talk about responsibilities in terms of like these sort of ever increasing concentric circles, right? So think about this in terms of cosmopolitanism, uh, you have the like the first circles, like the preservation of the self and your care for your family. But then you have your extended family, and then you have your fellow citizens, and then you have your fellow countrymen, and then finally you have the whole human race, right? Of these of these circles that constantly go out, and all of those are interrelated. And so I think uh, the interrelated aspect of existence that the Stokes emphasized through cosmopolitanism is, is really important. And, you know, you, you mentioned a uh, citizen of the world. I think you used that phrase earlier, Andrew. You might be thinking of a Socrates quote where <laughs> he famously said, I'm not Athenian or a Greek, but a citizen of the world. Socrates is a wonderful guy. <laughs> I think this idea of cosmopolitanism is, it's not that foreign to us now, but it's, this is like, I don't know. Um, it's just such a, it's a, such a different, it's just, I don't, I don't even know how to describe how different that would have been towards, towards a Greek in that time, someone who's living with Zeno, or even in that Socrates uh, speech that you mentioned, that's just such a wildly different concept. They would not, they, <laughs> those, those Greeks would not have, not, not have believed that. And you, you know, you, you mentioned nature and there's so much, so much in meditations uh, by Marcus Aurelius and the others too. Uh, by others, I mean the other big three guys. And they just, at least in my translations that I've looked at, they really mention kind of the universe. The universe is a large-scale kind of entity, is, is a play in nature. And now that you're mentioning it about um, about cosmopolitanism, cosmos in Greek means like universe. So I don't know if it, I don't know if it's citizen of the world, citizen of the universe. Citizen of the universe sounds kind of cooler, makes the Stoic sound like proto-Buzz Lightyear's. <laughs> But yeah, it's it's just such a wildly like yeah, I think it, they probably meant something more like citizens of the world. But for us, uh, it might be better for us to understand it as citizens of the universe or people of the universe or something like that. It's just like we're not bound by our city by by um, the human race as a whole. We're we're part of nature. We're citizens of nature. Yeah, and you might say on that point, you know, the idea of government or the idea of cities or or, or nationalities, citizenship are really kind of a, sort of a human construction to begin with. Oh, for that sure. If you yep. take like a really stripped down version, really, we're all just citizens of the universe. 
citizenship implies that there's laws behind something. Like you're not really a citizen if there's no laws that exist. So I could make, I could make like a city right now called Andreopolis and claim that like you know <laughs> I have ten thousand citizens that reside in the Houston area or whatever. But people aren't really citizens of things that don't have laws. And so when they claim that they're a, a, you know a citizen of the world or a citizen of the universe, that's with their belief that the universe has these laws written into it, which is really cool. Yeah, it's really cool to think about. So I think biggest criticism that comes to mind for me, well, there's a few, but we can get into those that are more specific to each author when we come to those. But I think the biggest broad criticism as a whole is one that I've mentioned. Stoicism does not leave opportunity for other goods to exist, which contribute to a good life. And so there's only the virtues that contribute to a good life. Nothing else matters. And I think that can seem weird to a lot of people, including myself. Aristotle famously, or maybe not famously, famously to me, thinks that there's two things that contribute to a good life. One is the virtues of action, these cardinal virtues, but also intellectual virtues and also other goods and good fortune along with it. So when we talk about these four cardinal virtues as being the only things necessary to have a good life, I don't know if I'm sold because I think that there's probably other things that contribute into a good life. And in the good life, I am awfully using this term uh, to mean eudaimonia, uh, to contributing to a life of flourishing. Good life is, I've been saying that throughout the entire episode, and that's a really bad habit. But yes, I'm, I'm not sold that eudaimonia comes directly from only these virtues. But I don't know, maybe it could. Yeah, we'll see as we go through the other authors. A couple of other, I guess, criticism we could point out. And you sort of alluded to this in a way. You know, does Stoicism put too much emphasis on human reason? Uh, in other words, when you take the totality of a human being, human reason seems to only be one aspect of who we are. Yeah. Uh, of course, the Greeks saw it as like our guiding self. It's not like the Greeks didn't acknowledge emotions or urges or things like that, but a broader conception of a whole human being might be that emotions are a very important part of who we are and shouldn't always be treated with skepticism and that even our urges which are very natural as much as the <laughs> as much as the stoics talk about following the nature of things our urges that the greeks always sort of dismissed are also part of who we are and you might say reason is perhaps the superior of those but maybe too much emphasis on human reason at the cost of other aspects of experience I want to put something in that I think is kind of funny. You mentioned um, like a good guiding spirit or something. I, I think you said something along those terms. Eudaimonia is a, is a, such an interesting topic. It's something that I spend a lot of time about, so I'm really happy to talk about it here. And it's literal translation, you know, it's accepted kind of translation into English for what it means in philosophy is flourishing, Mr. Parsons said. But it's a translation literally means something like good spirit, good directing spirit, which I think is so cool. And it r really shows you, you know, that's, that's, that's what all of these, these uh, Stoics and all the rest of them wanted to do, you know. It's so these virtues can build a good spirit so you can make good decisions. 
Yeah, so that's an overview of Stoicism. Over the next couple of episodes, like we said earlier, we're going to go over the big three, Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius. And by visiting their work and going through it, you'll see a lot of the things that we've talked about in this episode. We will revisit those as well as we go through their works, and we'll make it sort of applicable to that. So we hope you enjoyed this particular episode on Stoicism. It's a philosophy of life that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways, especially things like dichotomy of control. And absolutely, you know, if virtues are a, I think virtues are a good way to to guide our thoughts and moral behavior. So lots of good things there in, in Stoicism. But that's it for today. Well, all right, everybody, that's going to be about it for today's episode, our first episode on Stoicism in our X-part series. I think it's our four-part series on Stoic philosophers. Um, thank you so much for listening. Yeah, check us out online at our numerous places. Oh, my gosh, we're just everywhere. You can find me on D underscore Parsonage. That's on Twitter. Uh, of course, we have an Instagram for Open Door Philosophy and even a website, which will which will delight the senses. Uh, it's incredibly intricate layout <laughs> at opendoorphilosophy.com. You can also feel free to email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com if you have any questions or if you have any ideas, things you want to talk for us to talk about on future episodes. We really appreciate hearing from y'all. Yeah, we really do. Uh, it's always very validating and enjoyable. Remember to uh, like and rate us on any of those platforms that you listen to our podcast on. Uh, it really helps out. And of course, pass along Open Door Philosophy to people you think that might enjoy it. And a special thanks to Kevin McLeod for the use of his music throughout the episode. It's quite groovy. I know my mom really likes it. Uh, so, um, yes. Kevin McLeod is the mom vote. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, thanking him is the virtuous thing to do. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Have a great next week or two, and we'll see you soon. Oh, and that's right. Remember, uh, wait, what's our tagline? <laughs> when your life is in need of some philosophy. The door is always open. Have a great week, everyone. Have a great week. It's it's so much fun. I I recommend. Well, I don't know if I don't know if it's a lot of fun actually, but it's a good time. I think like the the, <laughs> the vibes are pretty good. Um, the vibes are pretty good. You can get like a lot of like fr- especially a lot of fried food. I don't. I'm. I don't think I've ever been to like an actual carnival other than like you know these like amusement parks or other than the rodeo. So I don't know how it's like at other places, but I presume it's kind of similar where you just have. A lot of like fried food and that's that was pretty good i went once a couple years ago and and decided once was enough but (laughs) it's not because i didn't have a terrible time it was just you know a lot of people and i don't know watching people tie up cows as fast (laughs) as they can is you know not that exciting for me i love that i love that (laughs) do you (laughs) I, i i love the rodeo part but you know, that's how I feel about the Renaissance Festival, too. Ah. Yeah. I don't know how you feel about that, but... Uh, I oh, I like the Renaissance, Renaissance Festival. Festival. 
Let's see, we're, we're really off base here. Uh, but yeah, I like, uh, you know, grabbing a cup of mead and setting down and watching all the all the people walk by because there's definitely lots of interesting people to, to watch sure. at the Renaissance Fair. Yeah, I remember, this is totally way off topic again, but I was at the gas station when I was like eight years old. I had no clue what the Renaissance Festival was. And there was a guy who walked in like dressed as a pirate. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, the first time I went to the Renaissance Festival, it was like I stepped into a whole new world that I didn't know existed. And uh, it was kind of fascinating, honestly. Um, I kept looking at all these people dressed up and I was I, I like wonder what they are in regular life. Like, you know, here's this guy that looks like a barbarian. He's walking around bare chested. And I'm like, is he an accountant or... <laughs> what do these people do for a living? Probably all philosophy professors. <laughs> Probably are. <laughs> oh boy. Anyways, well, I suppose we ought to talk about some stoicism. Probably. Probably. <laughs>